0: So this is about three days before Christ's death. And the Pharisees here, after being trounced by three parables that openly displayed to everyone their hypocrisy, their rebellion, and their wickedness, according to verse 15, went in response and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. Or as Luke writes... About the same scenario in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, he said they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And this is the way it's always been in reference to the religious leaders to Jesus, because even before this particular exchange, After rebuking the Pharisees earlier, Luke tells us that Jesus went away from there after Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And yet again in John chapter 8, after they caught the woman in adultery, the religious leaders brought this woman to Jesus and they asked him, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So, what do you say? And the reason they asked Jesus that question, the reason they brought this woman into the presence of Jesus, was, according to John 8 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So, the question is why? Why the repeated and relentless efforts by the religious leaders in Israel to catch, to trap, to entangle Jesus so that they might have some excuse to destroy him? I mean, really, if you think about it, what has Christ done that would elicit such a strong and malicious reaction? Well, the answer is easy. Jesus has aimed at and laid low their greatest idol over and over and over again. Their greatest idol being themselves, their status. And if you would clearly see the true nature of a person, the real you, the real me, the easiest way to do that is to chip away at, to critique, to rebuke, to call out, or even embarrass our primary idol, which is ourselves this is the very idol that each and every one of us to varying degrees is quite protective of, right? we are quite protective of our very own selves when we either rebuke another or are rebuked by another when we are called out or laid low by a reproof or when we do the same to another it is then that we see either who they are or we see who we are it is when we It is then that we see what we love most. We see what really sits upon and dominates the primary seat of affection in our hearts. Now every so often there are those that God will bring to us. Every so often we will hear men and women so filled by the Spirit of God that they can say and truly mean the types of things that the great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon said in one of my most favorite quotes of all time, and you've heard me repeat it numerous times, and I quote, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet, even so, be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would gain nothing by the correction. If you would have your moral portrait painted, and you find it ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few marks to mar it further, and it would be nearer to the truth. End quote. Ouch! But such honesty with ourselves is rare, isn't it? And we can see this in our responses, even to the honest critiques and the honest rebukes that we might receive in our own lives, whether they are the wounds of a friend or even those of an enemy. Generally, as soon as they are heard, they are immediately met with a chorus of how dare yous, or who do you think you ares, or you know the Bible says thou shalt not judge, right? Right? Or even, oh yeah, well let me tell you about all the flaws and issues you got going on in your own life there, Mr. Log in the Eye. may not say it exactly like that, but you know. And sometimes it extends out even further in the form of passive-aggressive dispositions toward those who've insulted your greatest idol. Or even worse, spreads out from there to actively backbiting and sabotaging reputations with gossip and slander. Very rarely, it seems, as is the case with the Pharisees in our text today, very rarely it seems do we remain silent, consider what has been said, and remind ourselves of the very truth that Spurgeon taught. I'm far worse than that anyway. Why would I get upset? We are all so much worse than we think we are. And when we realize that, as the great John Bunyan said, when we the more we recognize our badness, the more it ought to produce in us humility. As we recognize that, our response ought to be, thank God for His precious grace. Thank God for His undeserved mercy Thank you, God, for reminding me of my need for your forgiveness and revealing to me yet another layer in the disgustingly odor-filled onion that is my sinfulness, so that I might have the opportunity and the blessing of confessing it to you and and, and experiencing the refreshing waves of your love and your pardon of that sin. Oh, our God, you are so wonderful." King Solomon understood the benefits of rebuke and reproof and correction and wrote a number of Proverbs to buttress the point for us. Here's three. In Proverbs 10, 17, we read this. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. And in Proverbs 15, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And one more, Proverbs 17, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And as we make our way through Matthew's gospel, the age-old problem of self-idolatry and the furious response of those well in love with themselves when their great idol is critiqued looms large. See, the gospel account in Matthew introduces us to a variety of religious leaders who have been overseeing the nation of Israel. Chief priests and scribes and elders and Pharisees and Sadducees and the the rest. And all of these suffer from the same problem. Love for self dominates their heart. They crave accolades and adoration and respect and high status and reputation from the nation that they lead. And they covet and they lust for these things with such an intensity that even when the rightful king of Israel, the Messiah himself, comes to them, they detest and recoil at the idea of relinquishing their privileged seats of status in the nation. They abhorred the thought of losing that and handing it over to another that they will now have to serve. Because they didn't want to serve anyone. They wanted everyone to serve them. That Their idol demands it. And so, with this idolatrous attitude dominating their hearts, perhaps you can now begin to understand their anger and their response to Christ's repeated rebuke of their way of doing things. You can understand why they respond the way they do when Christ repeatedly embarrasses them and frustrates their plans and speaks to them as though they were further away from the kingdom than tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He even goes so far as to call them to repentance along with the common people and they simply can't take it. And they don't respond with any sort of humility, nor will they examine themselves or deliberate among themselves as to whether they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But instead, being fixated on and seeking and craving honor and importance from other humans, they exchange the glory of God, who is blessed forever. And so Christ begins his rebuke of the religious leaders quite earlier on. You can go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where Jesus indirectly rebukes the leaders for their inability, their lack of desire, or perhaps even worse, their deceptive interpretations and applications of the Old Testament law to the people of Israel. In a series of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, statements, Jesus corrected and cleared up the centuries of faulty, self-serving explanations of the scriptures. Now, Know this, Jesus is not, was not updating or correcting the Old Testament law itself. The scriptures are perfect. Jesus was clarifying for the people what the intention of the law actually always had been, but it had been muddied and covered over by the religious leaders in Israel, because the religious leaders in Israel loved to make a habit of teaching the law in such a way that they themselves were able to keep it in the eyes of the people externally and so maintain the respect of the people so that the people would see them as the holiest men in all of Israel and they got what their idol craved. Jesus also rebuked these same religious leaders for their lack of care and concern for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Instead of compassion for the less fortunate, instead of calling sinners to repentance and holding out to them the wonderful grace of God available to them, available to all who turn to Jesus in faith, the religious leaders spread the lie that certain sinners were simply too filthy to be acceptable to and loved by the Lord. And the more these leaders could make religion about generally comparing themselves with other people, the more they could make clean-cut distinctions about who was in and who was out based on external observances, the better served they were. And they walked around with their heads held high, looking down at all of the sinners beneath them who weren't as pious as them, and they walked around saying to themselves, do you see how holy I am? If you want to know how holy I am, just look at all of these other people. If you don't see it, just look at that sinner over there. Compare my life with theirs and then you will see. So Jesus corrects them in Matthew 9 when he sits at the table with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees mumble and they grumble about this, this eating at the table with sinners. And they went and asked Jesus' disciples in chapter 9 verse 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or in other words, how could such a holy man, a supposed holy man, sit in the presence of such vile, a vile and vulgar group? And Jesus re- responded to them, saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can imagine the religious leaders sitting at the table here, saying, wait a second, you claim to be sent to Israel, from God, and yet you'll spend more time with sinners calling them to repentance than appreciating our righteous and holy lives? That's just not going to work. There's no way we're going to give up or share or welcome a variety of sinners in to dilute this honor pool. But All of these rebukes, and there are more, will culminate in the absolutely withering reprimand and chastisement of Israel's leaders in chapter 23 to 25, which was, so, which was so much to them, which was too much for them to bear, and it led to them plotting together to arrest Jesus by stealth so they could kill him. You read that in Matthew 26, verses 3 to 4. But even so, all of these scoldings, rather than humbling the leaders in Israel, only served to increase their fury increase their anger and jesus as he mercifully rebuked them over and over again as he lovingly humbled them over and over again displaying for all to see their hypocrisy their lack of concern for truth and continually embarrassing them in front of the crowds they simply wouldn't take a breath they simply wouldn't consider what jesus has been saying to them they could not stop for even a second to think to themselves you know what jesus is right We have been too proud. We have been too focused on ourselves. At the expense of the nation's spiritual life, Jesus, what should we do? No, instead they lash out in fury against the one who continued in his instruction to clobber and defeat and reveal their idol over and over and over again. And in three parables in Matthew chapter 21 and 22, Jesus speaks them in rapid succession. It's no different. You remember the parable in chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, where Jesus admonished the leaders for refusing to heed the call from a true prophet sent to them by God. John the Baptist, the first prophet in 400 years, could not have been clearer in that he pointed out Messiah, he pointed out the Christ, he actually took his finger and pointed at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God, the Liberator is here, in front of all the people. There he is! And yet the religious leaders refused to believe John. And in the next parable, in 21, 33 to 46, Jesus chastised the religious leaders for doing exactly what they've always done throughout Israel's long history, rejecting, mistreating, and killing the prophets. And in the third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus speaks to these leaders and tells them that they are going to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven because they reject Christ. However, that glorious wedding feast of the gospel will be taken to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will fill up that banqueting hall. And the result of all of this, all of these parables was an even more concerted effort by the religious leaders to eliminate Jesus. And as we come to our text, you'll see there's going to be three groups in the next few verses who will most likely in a coordinated effort bring to Jesus three separate questions in hopes of tripping Him up, in hopes of entangling Him in His words so that they might deliver Him up and be rid of Him once and for all. So the Pharisees went out and plotted. The word here indicates their desire to take Jesus literally into their hands, to take hold of Him physically. And they hope to do this or to accomplish this goal by catching and ensnaring Jesus in and by his teaching. They hope to catch Jesus like an animal in in a net by getting him to answer questions. (coughs) So you see, the intentions of the Pharisees in bringing questions to Jesus wasn't to learn anything from Jesus, but to trip him up, to get him out of the way. And so with that in mind, in verse 16, we read that the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. That's a key point. (coughs) Sorry. You see, the Pharisees hated Roman taxation, and they bitterly opposed any thought of paying taxes to Rome. But the Herodians, they were supporters of what was known as the Herodian dynasty. The Herodian dynasty was a family installed by the Romans to rule over religious or the Jewish regions. And so the Herodians, in order to keep their status, supported paying taxes to Rome. But the Herodians were Jewish because their status and their privileges depended on the collection of those taxes. So two groups whose idols of self-status depended upon two separate outcomes or two separate answers to this question (coughs) come to Jesus asking him this question. And generally speaking, these two groups couldn't stand each other. They stood at opposite ends of the spectrum. (coughs) Sorry. When it came to the question brought to Jesus regarding the propriety of paying taxes to the Roman government. However, their hatred for Jesus brought them into an alliance of sorts as both groups saw Jesus as an enemy and tried to figure out a way to eliminate him. And so they worked together to bring about the destruction of their supposed opposition. And what was their strategy? (coughs) A strategy that works quite a bit. Flattery. Compliments. Buttering him up in hopes of lulling him into a false sense of trust for those seeking to destroy him. Let's try this blue drink here. no doubt they'd work this tactic on others to great success. Because who doesn't like to hear others speak and express their admiration for us? And so they begin in verse 16, Teacher, we know that you are true. See, they begin with an honorific title, Teacher. But you remember, right, that not too long ago the religious leaders were asking him, By what authority do you do these things? Back in 21, 23. These things included his teaching and preaching the gospel in the temple. And now they approach him and they call him teacher. Nothing has changed in the last few hours. They still hate Jesus. They've just shaken up their strategy a little bit. Teacher, we know that you are true. We, plural, the religious establishment in Israel, we know that you are true, meaning that you are honest, that you are genuine, that you are righteous, and that you are truthful. And we also know that you teach the way of God truthfully, 22.16, meaning you instruct the nation in the pathways of the Lord with accuracy. You make crooked roads straight. The people can depend on you to speak the truth uprightly, with integrity, and with accuracy. And so you see them heaping on, flattery after flattery as they continue on. We also know that you don't care about anyone's opinion, verse 16. Meaning you are unconcerned with, you aren't anxious about. It doesn't matter to you what anyone thinks. You are impartial. You do not adjust or craft your instruction according to the opinions of those who are listening to you. But instead you fixate on and you instruct with the Scriptures Because you are not swayed by appearances. Or more precisely, if you look at that phrase, you'll see probably a little footnote in your Bible. And if you look at the bottom, it'll say something like the the specific meaning is you don't look at people's faces or something like that down at the bottom. There's a Hebrew idiom that describes someone who doesn't change their message based on the reactions of the people to what is being said. As you look out on faces and you can see people, if you're speaking and they're just like, you know, and all of a sudden, you're like, well, no, I didn't mean that. I meant this. And then they're like this, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. So whatever their faces are doing, you start changing it accordingly. They say, you don't do that. You follow the way of truth without any fear of reprisal, without any fixation on the favor and applause of, pe- of the people, which can't be said for the chief priests and the elders of the people who, because they fear the crowd, refuse to answer questions that are brought to them by Jesus. So now, with all of the sappy, sugary, flattery out of the way, these questioners might assume, we've got Jesus right where we want him. And ready to spring their trap, they continue in verse 17 with a question. The question, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, is it appropriate Is it permissible? Is it authorized or allowed by the law of Moses to pay taxes to foreign overlords ruling the nation of Israel and in so doing support their continued pagan oversight of the nation? There is no direct Old Testament law that gives any clear-cut answer to the question of what Israel must do in regards to taxes should they be dominated by another nation. And so the Israelites generally fell into two categories on this subject. The minority position were those who supported Herod's rule over Jewish territories and therefore supported Roman taxation. Again, this this is represented by the Herodians who come to Jesus. The majority position in Israel was that the payment of such taxes constituted treason against the nation of Israel. It was clearly, according to them, disobedience to the God of Israel and for much of the Jewish population... Nothing was more humiliating to them. Nothing was more reflective of their current status as a nation subject to foreign overlords than the payment of Roman taxes. This very tax paid for and supported the armies that kept the people of Israel under Roman rule. Now, this issue of taxation for in, uh, of, among the Israelites to Rome was actually a a rather large question. This very subject led to a number of insurrections in Israel. For example, in Acts chapter 5:32, we read of a man, Judas the Galilean, who rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He perished and all who followed him were scattered. The historical background the Judas the Galilean was that he kick-started an insurrection in the year 86. A.D.6, not 86, A.D.6. He did so by crying out to the Israelites, God is our only ruler and king, and taxation is the path to enslavement. That, that rebellion and insurrection was crushed by the Romans, and Judas was put to death but it is quite likely that a number of Judah's followers were still in the crowds that Jesus was teaching on this day. There were a number of Israelites who still clung to the teaching and the message, awaiting the days of their liberation from Rome. And then if you flip 60 years later, in AD 66, the rebellion or the insurrection in Jerusalem that led to Israel's expulsion from the city and the destruction of the city was rooted in this very issue. Jewish nationalism, anti-Roman sentiment, and the payment of taxes to the Roman government. So you see, this is not an innocent question. It's an absolute powder keg of a question. And the fact that both the students of the Pharisees and the Herodians approach Jesus with the question means that no matter what answer Jesus gives... If he said, yes, pay the taxes, the Pharisees would trumpet his words to everyone following him. They'd paint him as a traitor to the nation, unconcerned for, maybe even antagonistic to, their hopes for liberation and the kingdom. If he answered yes, the Pharisees would use that to alienate the freedom-loving Jews from Jesus by accusing him of being sympathetic to Rome and the oppressive pagan rule of the Roman government. But if Jesus said no don't pay the tax, then the Herodians would have immediately run to the Roman officials and said, Jesus is a rebel fomenting revolt against the Romans, and to Pilate, they would go with the news. Now, the religious leaders were not able and are not able to entangle Jesus with their question, and so later on, uh, the religious leaders would just straight up lie about this exact subject. They'd lie to Pilate about this anyway. If they couldn't trap Jesus in his words, they'd just simply resort to flat-out deceit. In Luke 23, verse 2, for example, they said, they accused Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself, Christ, is a king. Just a straight-up lie. So what to do with such a question? What to do with this trap this plot, this entanglement, this question for which a yes or no answer brings grave consequences upon Jesus. But also, and here's the genius of their question, should Jesus refuse to answer the question? As the Pharisees refused to answer the question of Christ in chapter 21 verses 21-25, See, at that point, the religious leaders refused to answer the question because it would have been detrimental to their reputations regardless of how they answered the question. And so they simply refused to answer. And so if Jesus refuses to answer, the Pharisees could say, hey, this guy's no different than any of us. He says, we are so concerned about what everybody thinks of us, but look at this hypocrite. It's an ingenious situation, isn't it? A yes is wrong, or not wrong, but a yes is wrong will lead to consequences, a no will lead to consequences, no answer will lead to consequences. So how is Jesus going to handle this particularly thorny question? And you can imagine the Pharisees and the Herodians standing back saying, we got him. Well, look at verse 18. And I I have no doubt that if this were today, this situation was happening today, everybody would have their phones out. They would be recording it, salivating over the possibility of posting to YouTube a Pharisee's owned by Jesus or something like that. You know those videos? Ridiculous genre of videos, by the way. Look at verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test? you hypocrites. See, Jesus possesses full knowledge and he recognized the motivations of their heart. While they prefaced the question with a variety of compliments, Jesus perceived their malice. That word there for malice describes a depraved, perverse, sinful, villainous goal to achieve a wicked and evil outcome. That's what that word means. But Jesus saw through the outward show and asked them, why do you put me to the test? Why are you trying to entice me? Why are you hoping to trap me? Why are you trying to get me to answer this question to my harm? Why, you hypocrites? You who pretend to be one thing externally while internally intending another. You're a bunch of actors who pretend to be holy, who pretend to be patriotic, who pretend piety and admiration, all the while remaining wicked in your heart listen said jesus show me the coin verse 19 show me the coin for the tax and they brought him a denarius isn't it amazing how quickly they produced the very coin so many of them thought treasonous but as jesus holds up the coin you can imagine the crowds just all leaning in the crowds the pharisees the herodians all of them leaning in expecting eagerly expecting his answer what will he say is he going to belittle and insult the face on the coin is he going to confirm for us one way uh, that we did, once and for all that we don't have to pay taxes to a corrupt and evil regime like rome who uses those taxes for evil things is he going to say that we should pay the taxes what is he going to say and jesus said to them Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar. Now the coin, in gener- the coin in question here would have had on one side of the coin the image, a visual representation of Tiberius Caesar. Of Tiberius Caesar seated on a throne, wearing a crown, and clothed in, clothed in the vestments of a pagan high priest. And on the other side of the coin, there would have been an inscription reading saying, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, pontiff maximum, or the highest priest. See, such a coin was an affront to the Jews in the land because it was a symbol of pagan idolatry. And the coins reminded everyone that Caesar demanded two things from the people, taxes and worship. He demanded that the Roman populace in general worship him as divine. Now, the Jews were exempt from worshiping Caesar as divine, but they were not exempt from the payment of taxes. This same exemption, however, would not be afforded to the early church. Those early Christians were commanded by Caesar to recognize him as Lord, and they would call upon the early Christians to repeat this phrase, Caesar is Lord, or face death. But the early Christians knew that such titles do not belong to Caesar, and this is where the phrase, like we will say, Jesus is Lord, it comes from here. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, the Christians chose to say Jesus is Lord, and they paid for it with their lives. The phrase Jesus is Lord would have been for pagan Romans an offensive statement, one that must be silenced. And so you see, the early Christians were okay with paying their taxes, with being good, productive citizens, with praying for and seeking the welfare of their cities, but they were not okay with rendering to Caesar what belongs rightly and only to God himself, worship and glory and exaltation and allegiance. And the early Christians thought this way based upon Christ's answer to the question asked of him in our text here this morning. Christ will and does indeed answer the question of propriety of the propriety of paying taxes to an evil Roman government by saying in verse 21, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This coin and the likeness on it and the inscription of Caesar means that you got it from him. So give it back to him whenever he wants it. Render here means return it, give it back, yield it up. Give back to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, like this coin. So the answer is yes. If Caesar demands his coins, then give Caesar his coins. Serving God does not necessitate the refusal of taxes even to so corrupt a regime as this. The Apostle Paul will reiterate this in Romans chapter 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. If the worldly leaders demand their minted monies back, give it to them. But there are certain things that do not belong to Caesar, but they belong to God. And seeing as the Romans demanded worship, they demanded the recognition of the supposed divinity of the emperor, this is something you do not, do not yield up. You and I know, if we look through history, it all, as it always tends to go with, a, with the state in whatever time or place or part of the world, it will, as time moves on, seek to deify itself in some way whether it's in the form of an emperor or a pharaoh or a king with delusions of being divine him or herself, or some system governed by fallen human beings, eventually all of them, left to themselves long enough, will begin to encroach upon the things that are God's. And so while we pay our taxes and we live as good citizens, we worship and give supreme allegiance always only to God alone. So when any authority begins telling Christians that they cannot proclaim or teach or speak about certain biblical truths in society, you don't listen to such demands. You render to God the things that are God's. But if they say, give us our printed money back, then you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When governments around the world bring their bulldozers to church buildings and tear them down, threatening the members with fines and jail time and the rest, should they continue worshiping Jesus and declaring to the people around them that He is Lord, we do not listen to their demands to stop teaching and proclaiming Jesus as Lord, but continue to worship and declare. But when they say, We want the money with our leader's head printed on it back, we give it back. When society threatens to dox, that's a new word. I've just learned that word, dox. It's a new thing where if you say something that people will put all of your personal information on the internet so that you could be harassed by all of the people who oppose you. If the society threatens to dox you or to persecute you or to cancel you or to slander you unless you go with the cultural flow and refrain from speaking to the culture about Jesus, uh, to others about Christ, about holiness, about all of those things, you don't stop. Why? Because you do not, we do not ever render to Caesar the things that belong to God. So when you look at the question here, Jesus gives this answer. Yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. But don't think that Caesar is divine and do not give to him the things that rightfully belong to God. If Caesar wants his stuff back, give it to him. When he demands his taxes, give it to him. But your soul and your life are stamped with God's image. Your life belongs to him and to him alone. And so all divine honors claimed by the emperor, we never render those to him. Because our ultimate and a primary and pinnacle allegiance is to the Lord. So Jesus answered here an either or question with a both and answer. And the people when they heard it, they marveled and they left and they went away. The religious leaders could not quite entangle Jesus in the trap that they had set for him. And so they'll leave now and regroup and come back with two more questions that we're going to study over the next couple of weeks. The crowds here had heard and were quite amazed by the question, by Jesus' answer. But if you listen to his answer, you realize that the answer very clearly rejects the role of political revolutionary. Jesus rejected the idea of being a rebel against the government. And as a result, the very direct result of this is over the next few days, his popularity among the crowds will quickly wane. To the point that the crowds, when Pilate offers to free Jesus, he also offers up another man, Jesus Barabbas. And the crowds chose Jesus Barabbas. Why? Because he was the political revolutionary who would more quickly get across their political goals than the Jesus who said, Yes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And why did Jesus reject this political revolutionary role? It's because he came to earth for a singular purpose, he came to earth to seek and to save the lost. Jesus took on flesh and he made his dwelling among us so that he would be the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He would be the pioneer and the trailblazer of the path to salvation. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now, he had numerous opportunities to become the political figure that everybody in Israel wanted him to be. He was offered all the kingdoms of the world by Satan. On more than one occasion, the crowds that followed him were large enough to form an army. And at least on one occasion, those crowds tried to take Jesus and make him king by force. But every time, Jesus refused. And instead, he went to the cross. He endured the cross and he despised the shame so that today, right now, you might hear the good news that you can be forgiven of your sin and live forever by grace alone, through faith alone, in his name alone if you are a child of God, then your call is to render to God the things that are God. Two, as Romans chapter 6 verse 13 says, present yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. And you are called to render to Caesar also the things that are Caesar's. Now, I know this is no easy subject, especially given all the political turmoil and agitation that's taking place around our world. But if you look out at the world we live in, this is the way the world has always been. Corrupt, dark, populated by those with darkened hearts and futile thinking. And even in Jesus' day, as he spoke these words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Caesar was a pagan, ungodly, self-exalting ruler of an empire. No friend to Christ, no friend to those who followed Christ, He mints coins, he administrates an empire, he sets laws by which his earthly empire is governed, and seeing as you and I live in lands under his jurisdiction, we give him his stuff when he asks for it. And when you do, always remember this, unless Caesar, Pharaoh, President, Prime Minister, King, or Queen repents of their sin and turns to Christ, this will be the best it ever is for them. And one day they too will stand before Christ, who is the true king over all of creation, and they will bow their knee to him before being cast into the eternal flames. For you and I who love and serve Christ and trust Christ, however, this earthly life is the worst it will ever get for you. For the Christian, our ultimate goal in whatever land that we live in, whatever Under whatever sort of earthly regime or government we live is not the accumulation of more shekels, more Roman coins. It's not to get and gather greater wealth or more of the world's mammon. God in His grace might choose to give you those things and enjoy them and praise Him for them, but such such things are not our reason for being here. We are here to render to God what is God's. And we do so as foreigners, as sojourners, as passers through in this world, as we make our trek to the greater kingdom where our citizenship truly lies. The kingdom that is ruled by the greatest of all kings. Paul makes it clear in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, meaning that you as a Christian in this world who lives according to our charter, which is God's word, you will always feel the conflict of this world. This is why you constantly feel the abrasive scouring pad rubbing against you, rubbing against the scouring pad of the world, grating against you at every turn. And yet, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render to God what is God's. Jesus asked those trying to entangle him, if you remember, whose likeness and inscription is this? The Greek word for likeness here is icon. The word from which we derive our English word, icon which means an image and representation of something else, many times stamped or carved. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. See, a lot, of, a lot of Hebrews in this time had lost the ability to speak Hebrew, so the Old Testament was translated into Greek for the Greek-speaking Hebrews. would have been the Bible used by Jesus himself. They used the word icon in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, meaning the coins minted by Caesar, stamped with his image, belong to him, and give them back as required. But you, servant of King Jesus, you have been stamped with the icon, with the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent him as you live in this world you are called to give to God the things upon which His image is stamped, meaning your very life and your very soul, your total allegiance. We'll end there. Father, we praise You and thank You for Your Word. And I thank You once again for the reminder that our pinnacle authority that our prime allegiance is you. And oh, what a wonderful blessing that is. There is no one greater than you, no one higher than you, no one who is as good as you, as holy as you, as gracious as you, as merciful as you. You are the Father who gives all good gifts, all good things to His children. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to figure out and to understand where that line is. When we give the world back its stuff and when we refuse because that is encroaching upon the things that belong to you. I pray that you would help us to be good citizens but also great ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified and honored and well represented as we, your icons in this world, live for you in obedience and faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.